0: Good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, can you go to Joshua chapter 5? We'll be getting there um, eventually, having a little bit of a read of that. But before we get into that, I hope you guys have had a good half term break. Those of you who had it, maybe get a little bit of a rest. Um, my boys were off. Um, I had to work much of the week, but for a couple of days, the last couple of ways, we managed to get down to Torquay, where we have some family. Uh, and basically just had a little bit of time out, a little bit of time to be. And it was a wonderful time because on Friday, I don't know if you went out on Friday, the weather was amazing. And we were down in Torquay and because we're down there by the coast, the boys love going to the beach. We were always taking the beach. We arrived Thursday evening, went straight down there. Um, then we had some time just looking in the rock pools and just having fun. Then we were going to go out all day on the, the Friday thinking, well, what's going to happen? And because the weather was so amazing, we just got to go down there and chill out. And it was like T-shirt weather on the beach in October. It was actually better weather, um, the family were down there was saying, than in August the irony of it. So we spent all day on the beach, the kids went in the sea, uh, and they skimmed stones, built sandcastles, had all that kind of fun. We had an ice cream, we played in the park by, it. and we just had a bit of time just to chill out and to be as a family. Because life, I don't know about you, there's always stuff pressing in on life. There's always more jobs to do, more things to be done, and when you're at home, you can kind of find that everything's going away. So when we got to go away spend a couple of days away, we got to have that time to chill out. And as we were coming back in the car on the way home, Mel and I were talking to each other and one of the things was saying, it's good to just be. It's just good just to have those times, just to be, be as a family, have a break, chill out, um, away from things before you kind of life hits you and you get back on doing it. And what we're looking at today is a similar idea from the book of Joshua. The message is titled, It's Good to Be. And we're looking at Joshua chapter five, where this kind of thing happens with the people of God. Now, we've been preaching through the book of Joshua for a number of weeks now, and we've basically reached the end. We, by the end of this, we'll reach the end of chapter five. And if you've been with us that whole time and you've been keeping up with what we're doing, the first five books of, uh, first five chapters, sorry, of the book of Joshua are what commentators, theologians who studied it, say, call the preparation phase. Because the book of Joshua is all about the people of God inheriting the promises that were given hundreds and hundreds of years before to to Abraham, and now his descendants have grown into this nation, and God promised him that they would have a land that there was their own. And the book of Joshua is about them taking that land and inheriting that land, and we're five chapters in, and basically they haven't done anything. In terms of taking the land, all they've done, we found out last week, is they've crossed a river and then they're now in the land. And this is what's going to, and so by the end of chapter five, we're going to actually finish this preparation stage. And then chapter six, when they hit Jericho, that Matt's going to handle next week, is when actually the inheritance comes on proper. So we've been in this sort of prep phase for the people of God. Began in chapter one. God came to Joshua, who was the leader, who the book is named after, and he said to him, okay, right, go, get ready to take the people in the land. And he gave him some very serious charge. He says, he says, be strong and courageous. What was the context of that? It was be strong courageous in following what God had said, in obeying his commands. Because it's not always easy to obey what God has said. It can seem countercultural. It can just be hard. It can fly in the face of what's, what's happening. It means you've got to trust God, put faith in him. But he said, do that. And then we saw with the people of God, it was important that they had the presence of God with it. They were obedient to God. They were unified as one people under God. They were his people. We saw in chapter 2 when the spies went into the land. To check it out, do a bit of a recon. They met this lady, Rahab, who then confessed that she was a follower of the God of Israel as well. She'd heard about what God had done, heard about his mighty works in taking the people out of Egypt and, and parting the Red Sea and all these other things. And she was, and the, the spies returned in courage. Man, God's doing something in the land amongst these people. She also told them that all the other people who were, who were rebelling against God were afraid of God's people coming into the land. And then the last couple of weeks, we've seen them crossing the River Jordan, which was the great barrier between where they were and entering the promised land. This was a great river in flood. They couldn't get across it, but God performed a mighty miracle and stopped it. And so possibly upwards of a million people crossed over that river into the promised land, ready to take what God had called them to. And we looked at the whole idea of remembering last week, and we shared bread and wine together. So this now brings us to chapter 5. Hopefully you've managed to find it in your Bible. I'm going to read it to you. This is what it says. Okay, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel. Just so you know, you're going to have to get used to that word this morning. Everyone say circumcise. Say it louder. Okay, good. Guys get uncomfortable, women get embarrassed, but it's it's just what we're going to have to deal with. When you preach through the Bible, kind of everything, you've got to deal with it all. Normally you skip over this bit, but here we are. The sons of Israel a second time. Boy in mind it's with flint knives, just think about that. That's what it says. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibbeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the males of the people who came out of Egypt. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. When the circumcising, I told you it came up a lot, didn't it? Of the whole nation was finished, they, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Then Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, For the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. All right, let's have a look at this. Four things we're going to go through. We're going to go through context, we're going to do circumcision and Passover, and then we're going to look at this stranger at the end of the chapter. Big idea for this morning is our being comes before our doing. Our being becomes before our doing. All right, context of what's going to happen. First thing, they'd crossed the Jordan. The people of God, all the armies, the men ready for battle, plus the women and children. So they were quite an intimidating force. God had dried up the river in a breathtaking miracle so they could cross over and then brought it down. And so they were now ready to take the land. They were in it. The land was before them. And they were like, right, let's go to work. And it says that their enemies who were in the land, it says their hearts melted They were melting before them. They were afraid of Israel and Israel's God. They were terrified about what's going to happen. Now, if you're a military commander and you've got your armies ready, you're about to engage in battle and your enemy are terrified of you, what do you do? You attack them. You go after them. You say, let's press our advantage. Let's make this happen. They're on the run. They're going to, you know, all we have to do is blow our trumpets, march out. They're probably just going to turn and leg it. We're going to be able to take this land. It's going to be straightforward. There's not going to be a problem. But what happens to the people of God? What does God say to them? He says, stop. He says, wait. He says, there's things I need you to do. But God, if you have God, they're, they're running, they're afraid. Let's go. Let's take the battle to them. We're going to win this. will be a walkover. And God says, no. It's time to stop. Because God is more concerned with who we are than what we do. He's more concerned with our being than our doing. And what God wants his people to be is prepared for what comes ahead. He wants his people to be right with him. Battles are important and they will come, for sure. We read the rest of Joshua. We know what's coming. But actually, God is more concerned that they are obedient to his command, which he gave right back in Joshua in chapter 1. Obey my command, be strong, courageous and obeying the word of the law and be ready for what is coming up. And they need to be spiritually prepared for the battles that lie ahead. And there's three sort of episodes in this chapter that we're going to look at that God deals with his people on. And the first one is this issue of circumcision. Everyone say circumcision. Okay. Now, circumcision, first thing he does is he commands, verses 2 and 3, he gives a command to Joshua. And if we go back to the original covenant he had with Abraham, because where, when we go, we've got Abraham... And God spoke to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and he said, I'm going to make your descendants numerous and I'm going to give you this land that you're now in. That's what's going to happen. And then Abraham has a son, Isaac. He has a son, Jacob, who has 12 sons that go down. That's kind of the end of Genesis, go down to Egypt. Egypt mu- uh, in Egypt they multiply into this great nation. Uh, the Pharaoh presses them as slaves, so they live in slavery for years and years and years. Um, and then God sends Moses, who brings them out of Egypt, uh, plagues, Red Sea, etc, etc. They go into the wilderness going towards the land that was promised to Abraham. Very much like 400 plus years have kind of gone. they missed that, missed the first opportunity. The, that generation dies the world The second generation comes up under Joshua inheriting the land. So that's kind of the brief history. But back here with Abraham, when he originally gave the promise to Abraham, there was a sign of the covenant, the agreement between God and Abraham and his descendants. And that is that all the males from your line down would be circumcised Genesis 17 that's where he says that was the command that's what's going to happen that's going to be the sign of the covenant every male born will have their foreskin removed and that will be the sign of the covenant showing the agreement that God made to Abraham and its subsequent carrying on down the generations however this had not happened it had happened all the way down follow the story all the way here to when They had come out of Egypt under Moses and they'd had their first go around to try and enter the land in the book of Numbers. Moses sent out spies. We've seen it kind of repeated with Joshua. The spies went out into the land. There were 12 of them representing the 12 tribes. They came back. Ten of them said, in fact they all said the land's amazing, really good, but ten of them said there's no way we can take it because the people in the land are too big, too strong, we can't do it. Two of the spies actually did say it. One of them was Joshua, ironically, and one of them was his buddy Caleb, and we'll get to him. But that's what they said. But the, the people believed the ten. And basically they rebelled against God and didn't believe God. God's saying, I want you to go in, I want you to take the land, but the people of God says, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. And they rebelled against God. And under God's judgment, they said, Fine, you'll never get the land. You're going to wander in the wilderness till you're all dead, you've all died out, and a new generation has come up, and I will take them into the land, which is the one we're reading about. This is the new generation. However, somewhere at that point, the rebellion of God's people against God's commandments, they haven't been following this rule. So all those who were circumcised who came out of Egypt, dead. The new generations come up because of their rebellious parents had not been circumcised. So they're coming into the promised land and they're about to say, okay, we're going to go get them. And God's like, whoa, you still haven't fulfilled all the kind of the obligations of the covenant. And he says, Joshua, okay, we've got to make this right. You've got to sort this out. There's something not right about the people. We need to sort it. And so what does he say? He says, right, well, you've got to circumcise them all. All the men... I don't know how many that number is, but just think about it. That's a lot of guys. From the youngest to the oldest, do it. And it says there was a place called, there's a funny word there, um, Gibberith Haraloth. Um, I can't remember which verse is that in. That's in verse 3. Do you know what that means? Hill or foreskins. You're welcome. It is gross, isn't it? Just think about that. Hill. Hill. Just do the mass. Let let your mind run over that biblical image, and let's see if that comes up in worship later. But that's that's what they called it. <laughs> it may all the like are shifting uncomfortably. Yes, this is what's in the Bible. But that's what, so God says, "Some right, you've got to sort this out. You've got to make this right." And He gives this command to Joshua. Joshua does it. There's then a brief explanation, which I have just said to you about why that's happened—kind of the rebellion of the people. then at the end of that kind of section, as it concludes it up, verses 8 and 9, it says a couple of things which are interesting. It says after this had happened, they had to have time to heal. Obviously, flint knives, heal the foreskins, do the mass. There's some healing going on. So just put all the picture together. Cross the Jordan. Men of war. We're ready to go into the battle. The enemy are terrified. They're like, they're melting away. And Rahab said that in chapter 2, didn't she? She described it. The hearts are melting. You know, they've heard about you. They're terrified. The author says it there. The men are coming out of the battle. And what's the first thing God says to do, Joshua? Make all the fighting men useless. You go out and fight after you've had a flint knife in somewhere really sensitive. And there's now a hill of evidence to show that that's happened. Basically, they have, he has basically destroyed his military capability in an instant. If the enemy attacks, they are vulnerable and they will be wiped out. They just cannot defend themselves. So in obeying the commands of God, they have made themselves weak and vulnerable. That's what God has asked them to do. Joshua obeyed. And so they need to have a period of time to heal In what they're doing. And then it says at the end there, it says their reproach or their shame has now been rolled away. What does that mean? And it says the place is now called Gilgal. And Gilgal just means that it sounds like this word to roll away uh, in the Hebrew language. And what's the point of that? And what actually is because the shame that they would have been under was the shame um, twofold. One, because of the evidence of their rebellion against God, because they hadn't followed the commands of the covenant. So there had been a sense of rebellion. So God has taken that shame away by dealing with it. There's also a shame that would have come from the outside in terms of nations like Egypt and others who would have kind of almost laughed and mocked at them. Your God took you out of Egypt with all these... And now you're just wandering in the desert dying out you know it's a, you imagine that 40 years just wandering around and everyone had been laughing and thinking that's what your God can do really Do all those great works and now he's just got you aimlessly is the sat nav broken you, know, you can imagine the memes coming up on the internet about, these, you know, about the people of God they're useless God doesn't even know where they're going you you're lost do you know where the promised land is? he told you you can go there actually but you can't and so there's, there would have been a shame on God's people actually. If actually your God can't even fulfill his promises to you what kind of God is that but now they're in the land, and that shame has been taken away. The next thing we come to is the Passover. Now, we hinted at this last week when we looked at the chapter, and it talked about them entering the, um, the promised land on the 10th day of the month. 10th day, I think it was the first month. And that was when the Passover lamb was selected. And the Passover had been that, um, had been instituted in Egypt when they were slaves. It was the, it, the final plague that God sent, the death of the firstborn, because Pharaoh wouldn't release the people. And Moses went to the people and he said, right, this is what we've got to do. We select a lamb, you take it in, this lamb without spotless and blemish, and then the lamb is in sacrifice, blood is put on the doorpost and the lintel, and God says, I will pass over you. And when that has happened, then you are free, you, you go, you are released from slavery. It would be that moment of redemption for the people of God. And they were to be ready to move when that happened. And so the Passover is now being celebrated in the land. And they were very keen to follow the law. So the 10th day, it's mentioned they would have selected on the 14th day, they would have taken the lamb, sacrificed it. And the text makes it clear that they're very careful to observe what's happening, to observe the law and do it properly by God's command. So they were observing the Passover and it would have been their first one in the new, kind of in the land, Um, that that God had provided for. And the emphasis here is on God's provision. I think it turns up three times in verses 11 and 12. There's a repetition that God provided for them. This was a hugely significant turning point for the nation of Israel in the sense that they would crossed over into the land. They'd been eating manna in the wilderness for 40 years. The same thing. Every day, God miraculously provided for that. Every day, and then it was twice as much on the day before the Sabbath, so they could collect it, and they could eat some the next day on the Sabbath, and so didn't have to work. But that was just repeated week after week after week. That's what they have. They suddenly enter the, new, the land that God has promised for you, and it ends. They now have provision for land. It says they eat of the produce of the land of their inheritance. So for the first time, they probably weren't complaining about food that day. You know about oh same old same old. No, it was they got to eat of the land. The manner it says stopped. It would have been an incredible joyous time of salvation because the Passover, the first Passover, was their release from slavery. This Passover would have been the inheritance that that would have kind of led them to with the intervening period. So they were now in the land. They'd got the provision. They could eat of the land that God had promised them. They were now enjoying it, and their wilderness years were over. Their yielding years were behind them. God said, actually, you can eat of the produce of the land I've given you. So it was an incredible time of celebration. They had a new diet that reflected this new land, and it would have been a wonderful time for them. And then the final thing there, they have um, a stranger turns up. A stranger turns up. And so what happens here? So we've had the circumcision. They've got themselves right with God. They've had a moment to pause to celebrate God's provision, miraculous um, escape from Egypt, provision in the wilderness, entry to the promised land. And then it's, it, the, the tension switches from the people down to Joshua. Now Joshua is kind of right. okay, we've got ourselves right with God, we celebrate the Passover, is it time now to take the, the city, take the, which Jericho is the first obstacle, is it ready to take the land? And it says he's out there having a look around, maybe a scout, maybe just eyeing up the land this is what's coming up and it says he meets someone he meets someone there and in my translation it uses this word behold they're trying to get this kind of sudden appearance the idea of he's out there looking not expecting anything and then whammo a stranger appears and this stranger is intimidating because he has a drawn sword if you have someone who has a weapon that is now out of its sheath and being held what does that imply? They're ready to fight. They're ready to do battle. They're ready to kind of attack something. So Joshua meets this character and he's got a drawn sword. And we find this image of someone with a drawn sword is an image actually of God's judgment. We find it in Numbers 22 with the false prophet Balaam um, who was trying to curse God's people. And he met an angel with a drawn sword. We find it later in 1 Chronicles 21 where David um, had sinned against God and this idea of he was under God's judgment and the people of Israel were under God's judgment. And so there is a sense of there's there's someone there ready for battle and it's a symbol of judgment and it suddenly just appeared and Joshua just sees him. And you can imagine the situation, what's running through Joshua's mind, like, "Uh uh-oh, which way is this going to go? And so he asks, I think, quite a fair question. Are you for us or are you for them? Basically saying, Whose side are you on? Because you're ready to, to you know you're ready to throw down. Well which side are you on? And then the stranger answers somewhat maddeningly, no, which is really unhelpful. Whose side are you on? He just says, No. Okay, not very helpful, but there you go. But instead, for the stranger, that wasn't the right question. It wasn't even an important question. I guess from the stranger's point of view, the question is, who are you? And he identifies himself. He is the commander of the army of the Lord, which means he is the supreme military authority for God's forces, if you will. That's who he is. So this is a person of great power. And great authority, and the armies we're referring to would be a reference to the angelic army. You often see glimpses of it um, throughout the Bible. There's a story I think it's Elisha, who prayed for his servant to open his eyes, and he saw the angelic hosts around him that would actually would be fighting on behalf of God's people in sort of the, the spiritual angelic realm. So there's hints about this in the Bible. So this is who this character is. Once his re- his identity has been revealed, what does Joshua do in response? It says he worships. He worships. He falls down on his face and worships. And we've got this interesting kind of ambiguity here, which commentators aren't quite agreed on. Is who is this character? Is he a senior angelic figure, archangel, kind of that's some mentioned those kind of things, or is this? the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Trinity, before he was born of a virgin and we know him as Jesus, is this the second member of the Trinity, God himself appearing to Joshua? And there's kind of evidence sort of both ways. One of them says, because Joshua worshipped, it must be Jesus. It must be that appearance of that kind of divine figure that has come to talk to him. And we've seen that previously in part of the Old Testament when God himself turns up and talks to people. The other side would say, actually, no, it's probably a supreme angelic figure um, that is just delivering a message because when Joshua calls him, he calls him Lord, but he uses a general title, not a specific title for God's name. So maybe it's not that. The point, I think, for us is Joshua's response. He shows great humility before God. He recognizes the authority over him. Bearing in mind, Joshua is the leader of God's people. He is the supreme leader of God's people. He is God's chosen one. Yet when he has a divine encounter, he falls on his face and he recognizes himself. Well, How did Joshua call himself in this situation? He describes him as a servant. I'm the servant. You're the Lord. I'm the servant. His huge humility there. So when he's kind of exposed, when he sees this, his response from the encounter is to fall on his face and worship God. Because he recognizes his position in the grand scheme of thing, And he calls himself a servant. And he refers to this messenger, whoever it was, as Lord. And recognizes whether it's him himself, God, or it's been sent on behalf of God. He recognizes who's in charge. And then what does the, um, the commander of the Lord's army say to him? He says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. By implication, he's basically saying... Kind of we are, I am on your side in essence, even though that 's not it 's a bit of a crude way of putting it, answering joshua 's original question kind of obliquely there, but actually it 's more about the encounter with holiness and it 's more about that he has met kind of the living God, and interestingly, it echoes moses 's experience at the burning bush where he heard God speak. And the voice said, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. He's had an encounter with holiness. He's had an encounter with the living God. And again, the author has been keen to make us know that Joshua is the successor to Moses and he walks in the same line and has similar experiences, parting the waters, now an experience of God, holiness, and those kind of things. And so it's the affirmation that on the eve of battle, Joshua is the right man for the job and he's the one God has chosen to lead his people. And so what we got there is we kind of got the, the end of the first section of the book of Joshua, the first five chapters, and there's a bunch of things we can just kind of pull out to remind us what's happened. We know that very much God is with his people from all five chapters, the presence of God, leading his people, guiding his people, speaking to them. We know they have a leader who can take them into the promised land. Joshua is a worthy successor to Moses. He is the right guy. God's chosen man, he is obedient to God's call, he leads his people well. We've seen that they are very much, when they obey the commands of God, that God gives them, good things happen. They're obedient people. God blesses them. Great miracles are performed in his name. And they are, be, they are also careful to make sure that they are prepared for what comes in there. Again, sorting out areas of holiness and the like in what we've just read in this passage. So everything is set for what comes next, which is the, the battle of Jericho, and one of the most kind of famous books, a uh, famous sort of story, sorry, in the book of Joshua. So let's pull out a few things for us for now from what we've learnt today, and how we kind of engage with God. And there's three things I just want to talk about um, with us today. This whole thing about being before doing. The first one: be right with God. Be right with God. It always starts here. That as a people, we need to be right with God. We love to have our own th- way of doing things, our own way of living our life. But actually, ultimately, it's all about turning to Jesus and following with him. And that's what happened with Israel. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They'd seen God do mighty things. They were ready to go. But God says, actually, whoa, you've got some stuff to sort out. There's some baggage from your past that you're carrying into the future. And I want it dealt with. The way we'd use that now, the angers we'd probably use would be something like repentance. You need to turn away from what you're doing and come follow me, follow my commands. And for them that was the area of circumcision. You need to be made holy, you need to repent of the sin, the rebellion that you've had in your life and you need now to be made right with me. And this is what it boils down to for us as believers This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the good news. This is what it means to become a Christian that we need to be right with God. The story, the big kind of story of the Bible is that we were created, God made us, and we had perfect relationship with Him, and everything was good. Have Adam and Eve. Everything was right. But they rebelled against God. They said, We want to be in charge. We want to go our own way. Everything suddenly gets broken man's relationship with God, man's relationship with one another, man's relationship with creation. Everything is smashed. God then sets about a rescue plan and he says, I'm going to do something about it. And he takes Abraham and we have the people of God and then the prophets say someone else is going to come. And we can Jesus come and he proclaims the good news and he brings in the kingdom and he dies on a cross in our place for our sins. Never done anything wrong. He then rises from death bodily. He ascends to the Father. He then sends the Holy Spirit on the church and says, go and tell everybody this great news. And what it means to be a Christian is to turn away from our old way of life, that repent, put our faith and trust in Jesus, acknowledge that we're a rebel, acknowledge that we've done things wrong, acknowledge we've done things there are good things we should have done that we haven't even done, all that kind of thing, and follow Jesus all the days of our lives. And that's what we're called to do. That's what it means, to be right with God. And this is not based on ourselves. That's the important thing. It's not based on what we've done. It doesn't mean that we're good, we're smart, we've read our Bible, we've been to the right things, we go to church. It just means that by God's grace, his undeserved mercy, that we can come to know him. And that's what it means to get right with God. And we do that when we become a Christian. That's kind of the initial, but actually that then becomes a pattern of lifestyle. That's something we need to do all day, every day, continually making sure we're right with God. Enjoying what he's done for us. We've been made righteous, we've been made holy, the Bible says, as believers. But actually still we get things wrong. Still we make mistakes. Still we need to sort stuff out. Still we need to seek forgiveness. We need to repent of bitterness and attitudes and actions and all these things in our lives. We need to get them right before God. Because the Bible describes us as a holy people was set apart from God, just like his people we read about in the book of Joshua. They were set apart from him. He said, but you still need to get things right. And we need to make a regular habit of repenting of the things we've done wrong. The Bible just calls that sin. Depending of those things, when we've rebelled against God, gone our own way, not followed him, and done that. And here's the reality from the story. What does that actually mean? Well, if we remember that, that first section of the story, the bit on circumcision... The Bible talks about a circumcision of heart. That's why we don't follow that practice now. But we have a circumcision of heart where we repent in our heart. But actually, doing that can be painful. Doing that means being weak and vulnerable, just like the men in the story. It's a hard thing. It's not an easy thing to acknowledge our weakness before God. It's not an easy thing to confess our sin and say, I've done this wrong, I thought like this, I acted like this. But actually, that is what God is calling us to you to do. And my question to you, my challenge to you guys today, is: What is God asked of you? What does God ask you to do? Is it there? Is there an area of your life that you need to get sorted out? Is there an area of your life you need to bring into alignment with what God has said, with what God's commanded? Doing so will make you weak and vulnerable, and it can be painful. But ultimately, out of it, there is an inherit, there's a land, if you use the image from the story, there's a land to inherit. And if they hadn't done that, it would have prevented them inheriting the land. Are there things you need to work out? Is there things he's asked you to do? Is there something he's called you to? Something he's asking you to get involved in, to start, to move into? Is there a call God's put on your life? Something he's asked you and said, I want you to do this. Speak to that person. Get involved in them. Serve them. Fill in the blank. What is that? And are you doing it? Are you right with God in that that area? Because ultimately, if we're not obeying what God's asking to do, we are in rebellion. That's simply what it is. And the story teaches us we need to be a people who are right with God. Ultimately, no, all that God asks us to do is for our good and his glory. I I, I imagine if someone was approaching me with a flint knife in my early 40s, (laughs) ho, ho, ho. There will be a little bit of... But ultimately, what God asks for us will, will be for our good, even if it feels painful at the time, even if it feels rough at the time, even if it hurts at the time. Ultimately, what comes out of it will be good for you and for God's glory. Second thing, be right. first thing, be right with God. Second one, be still. Be still. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Israel rested as a nation in plain sight of their enemy. The Jericho was there. They could see the city. They could see what was going on. God says, Stop. Be still. Celebrate the Passover. Eat the food of the land. Just stop. And be still. And take a moment to kind of enjoy me and who I am. And we are to be a people who are still before God. And we take time to have that in the rhythms of our daily life. That we take moments where we just pause and rest. Like when I shared at the beginning about us going down to Torquay, we just had a little moment where we just stopped and we paused. And kind of life just took a, took a moment and we just enjoyed family, we enjoy one another, we enjoyed God, we enjoyed his creation. We just had those things. And we're to have that as part of our lifestyle life cycle. Let me ask you this question. Biblically speaking, biblically speaking, what's the first day of the week? Sunday. Today. I know this because on all four gospels it says when the women were going to the tomb in the morning, it says on the first day of the week they went to the tomb of Jesus and they found it empty because he had risen. So actually, our week as believers begins with rest, a day of rest. And we've got the old Jewish tradition was the Saturday. That was the Sabbath. That's why the women couldn't go. Jesus was executed on the Friday. They couldn't go on the Saturday. It was a Sabbath day of rest. They went on the Sunday. It was their first. Okay, we can go now. And then we have the wonderful resurrection story. But then as the church is birth, as a group of Jew- they're Jewish Christians, followers of Jesus, they suddenly decide the day we worship, the day we, we recognize, and the day we pause is the, is the day that Jesus rose from dead, which is the Sunday, which is why now, 2000 years, we do this on a Sunday. So we begin as Christians every week from a point of rest. Our Sunday should be the day we stop. And we rest, and we pause, and we take on, and we gather together to God's people, and we just recognize who he is. And that's something we should build into our life. That's why we should be here. Because we're gathering together with God's people, we're about to start a week, and we just pause and say, God, you're amazing, you're in charge, you're the one over all this. And we, we have a moment of stillness where we were reminded of who God is and what he's done. And also, we encourage in our daily life. We see it in the model of Jesus. What happens at the beginning of each day? What does it say the Gospel accounts say Jesus used to do at the beginning of each day? He used to get up while it was dark, go out and pray. Commune with his Father in heaven. There's that moment, the beginning of a day, where they paused. He stopped and he was still before God, before the, the, the monster of a day hit him and all the demands he had on his crowd and his dumb disciples and all those other things were coming in on him, he paused. And we encourage that you begin your day with a moment of prayer, a moment of reading your Bible, a moment of just stopping and being still and recognising who God is and enjoying him for that. And these are things we should build into our life, daily moments of rest but also weekly in our rhythm, to not have a weekly Moment where you stop is actually against God's created order. One of our acceptable sins in this day and age is workaholism, isn't it? That's acceptable. In fact, actually, that's encouraged because you work hard, you're busy. When you ask people how they're doing, what's the one thing they generally say? Busy. That's a sign of. If you're not busy, if you say to someone, How are you doing? and they said, Do you know what? Got nothing to do. Our first response is, Lazy so and so. Why aren't you doing something? And I recognize. Life's difficult and there's shift patterns and all these other things. But actually, we need to build into our life regular moments of just rest. And it should happen on a weekly where we have an a, a extended chunk. And depending on lies and how things work, that can be difficult. But it's, it's working that out. And actually not doing that, I submit to you, would say would be a sin against God and his created order. Because you can't, you're not following the pattern that he's put in place. And we need to have moments of rest Where we're still and we acknowledge who God is. And the last thing, be right with God, be still, be about him. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. We're to have our focus on him. Joshua is about to fight the biggest battle of his life. And on the eve of that battle, he meets the living God. Not talking tactics, strategy. Got your swords, got your bows and arrows. We're ready to go. Talking to his commanders. No, he meets the living God, and we are meant to be people who are about Him, and not just to check He's on our side, which is kind of what Joshua was doing. You on my side, or God's? Not, God's above that. God's like, no, it's about Me. I am the commander. Of the army of the Lord. That's right. It's all about you. It's all about recognizing who he is, recognizing who Jesus is. And there are times of place to ask, of course there are, but actually it always begins with, this is Jesus, this is who he is. That's why we sing our songs, to remind us of these truths. And part of our rhythm, part of our daily life, part of our walk with Jesus, should be recognising, taking moments of who he is. It's why when we gather together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is we begin here with worship. We begin here with praise. We begin here with singing. And the the mandate we give to the band is, I'll tell you what I actually say to them, but I say I want three rah-rah songs. That's what I call them. Rah-rah, upbeat, Jesus songs. I don't want anything about me and how much God loves me. You know. I want Jesus. I want Him. I want us to focus on Him at the beginning. That's how we start. That will pull us out of our kind of you know life and busyness and uh, focus on Him and Him alone because it's all about Him. That's all you do. He alone is worthy, and we need to build that into our life. We do it as a corporate body, and when we gather and pray, we will start with singing worship. Focus, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Him. We do it in our daily lives. You start at the beginning of the day. Pray. Read your Bible. Get your eyes on Jesus. Whatever happens, however that works for you. You read the Bible, you listen the Bible. I don't care. Just get your eyes on Jesus. I've got a church leader friend who leads a church in the center of the town. He has this phrase he uses, which is, um, always comes out. It's, it's pause, center, continue. That's what he always says. That's what he says to his, pe- his people. Pause, center, continue. And that's what our lives should be like. We should take moments where we pause, come back to the center? Who's the center? Not you. Yeah, good answer, Jesus. Not you is the answer. Not you. Jesus is the center. He's always the center. We to after making the center, he just is. And we put our eyes on that, then we continue out into our day. And it's effectively, this is what's just happened in this passage. They've paused, found their center, Jesus, and then next thing will be the battles that they've got to fight in Jericho. And so as God's people, we need to be right with him. We need to be still before him. And we need to be about him. Be about him. Be about his work. What he's called to you. Because once you've looked in his face, once you've met with him, once you've encountered him, then you can go about the business. We see that throughout scripture. Joshua's about to do it. Met, met him. Now I'm going to go and fight a battle. When Isaiah in Isaiah 6 met him, he met the living God, high and lifted up. Then he said, right, I'll go and proclaim the good news. Go and tell other people about me. That's what happens. When people meet Jesus, their lives are transformed and they want to go and do, serve him, love him, and show that love around. Let's finish. Can you stand up, people? And can the band come back? I'm just going to pray and then we're going to spend some time worshipping. I'm going back. Do you want to just close your eyes and let's just take a moment to be still before God I don't know what's going on in your life I don't know what kind of week kind of week you've had up or down I don't even know what your day's been like but I know we've got a moment here and I know putting your eyes on Jesus is never a bad thing it's always a good thing because when we look at him we are transformed in his presence slowly slowly Holy Spirit, I pray, God, you come on your people now. You fill us, Lord. Give us eyes of faith to see you. To see you in wonder, to see you in glory, to see you high and lifted up on your throne. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. For some of you, as I was speaking about being right with God, you know there's things in your life you need to get sorted out. And you know what they are. And I just want to give you a moment just to, To acknowledge that before God. He knows. So it's no surprise. But our response is to just acknowledge that before him. Put your finger on it and say, this is what it is. This is the area I need to turn around from. Repent. This is something I need to start doing or look into or, or push forward that I've ignored, I've put on the back burner. What it is now, just get it right with God. If you need to ask forgiveness, do that. If you need to repent, do that. Turn around, go the other way you know strength ask for that to, to move into whatever it is deal with it and if you know there's something you've spoken about today you know you've just done business with God please do not leave this room until you've acknowledged that with another person just to tell them I've done some business with the Lord today someone you trust someone you know say they're done and for my own us we're going to be still now and we're going to praise God and I am just going to ask Holy Spirit would you come and fill your people Fill us afresh that we may be able to worship you, that we may be able to see you in your glory, that we may be able to see you high and lifted up as the risen King, the one who saved us, the one who died in our place, the one who conquered death and conquered evil, and the one who rules and reigns victorious, the one who is mighty and supreme. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for the privilege of having that revealed to us and that we can enjoy that. We thank you, God, that it's, even though you are high and lifted up and mighty, you bid us come. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me, you say. For all those who are weary, heavy laden, he says, come to me. For those who are hurting and broken, he says, come to me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.